Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are ya? Now, before I get started on today's episode, which is a part one of a two-parter, I wanted to let y'all know that I'm going to be at this year's iHeartRadio Music Festival House of Music. I'll be recording live in the iHeart Podcasts studio that's powered by Bose. So come by on Friday, this Friday, at 6 p.m. to the free House of Music outside T-Mobile Arena. I'll see you there, and you'll be able to hear the episode I record at the House of Music at the iHeart Podcast studio powered by Bose on Monday. That episode should come out uh, Monday and will be about something really pertinent. Anyway, the House of Music, in case you're curious, it's this big interactive exhibit where you can experience immersive mixed reality. Uh, these experiences link to the various artists who are performing at this year's festival. And there is a, let me tell you, a wide spectrum of experiences, like something for everybody. 
Uh, there's a room that's dedicated to Public Enemy. There's another one dedicated to Fallout Boy. There's one dedicated to Kelly Clarkson. Like I said, it's a pretty wide range of experiences. And there are more besides that. Those are just three of the ones that will be part of this House of Music experience. Now, as part of that, we have, like I said, this Bose-powered podcast studio. And I know what you're thinking. Yes, this whole thing is way cooler than I am. But they still asked me to come. So I'm going to go there. I hope to see some of y'all there. All right, now let's get to the episodes. So since I am going to be traveling out to Las Vegas this week and it's going to really disrupt my normal recording schedule, I decided to get a jump on things and I wrote out a two-part episode for y'all. So part one is today. Part two will be tomorrow. Then on Friday, I'll be recording live in Vegas. And then um, next week should be I guess kind of normal. I'm actually still going to be in Vegas for a separate thing with Mobile World Congress, but we'll see how normal I can make it. I'm bringing my recording equipment with me. I'll just be recording probably in my hotel room, but someplace that's relatively quiet is my hope. Okay, now I have done a few episodes about patents on this show. Uh, Today, I thought I would talk about the history of the patent office here in the United States. and. Also talk about how one massive fire prompted changes that meant a second, technically more costly fire was ultimately far less destructive. But that's definitely getting ahead of myself because I won't even be touching the fires uh, at all because fire is hot, but I won't be talking about them until tomorrow. However, first, before we get into any history stuff, let's go over why patents exist in the first place. So. The purpose of a patent is to grant limited but exclusive rights to an inventor of their invention. And when I say inventor, I don't always mean inventor. I mean patent holder, because the the entity that holds a patent might not have been actually responsible for the invention, but through whatever arrangement between inventor and entity there is, it means that the entity holds that patent and they are They have this limited but exclusive set of rights. So the concept here is that the inventor comes up with either a significant improvement over an existing thing, or they come up with something that is totally new altogether. The inventor then details what this invention does and how it works in a document in a set of specifications Ideally, so that a person who was reading it would have a reasonable idea of how it functions and potentially could even follow steps to create a version of their own in the future. So the patent means that the patent holder can choose what to do with that invention and no one else has that right, at least for as long as the patent is valid. Patents do eventually expire, so that's why I say there's a limited exclusive rights granted to the patent holder because eventually they do expire. The patent holder can choose to make their own invention themselves. So they could start producing whatever it was they invented, and they could also pursue legal action against anyone who copies them. They could argue for patent infringement. So if someone were to try and make their own version and it appeared to be based off the same functions and operations that were covered by the patent, the patent holder could say, I hold the exclusive patent for this. I didn't give you permission to use this invention. You owe me money. 
And uh, assuming that the argument is a sound one and the court finds that, yes, the the copy or whatever was, in fact, based upon the exact same principles as the patented invention, then the court is more likely to to side with the plaintiff in that case. So the inventor or patent holder could also license their invention to other entities like a manufacturing company. So in this case, the company or whatever pays a license fee to the patent holder, and then that company starts to make the thing and sells it themselves. And the patent holder just sits back and collects licensing fees and doesn't have to actually pour the capital into making the thing themselves. Uh, If the patent holder is a real jerk, they can get a patent on something and then just sit on it and just wait to see if anyone ever makes anything that could be said to infringe upon their patents. Then the patent holder could sue or threaten to sue that other person or entity and look for like a really big settlement or court decision. Uh, This kind of patent holder is what we call a patent troll. Patent trolls don't make anything. They typically don't license their patents either. So they just sit on them. They patent something and they wait, and then they pounce if they see anyone that makes something that they could argue was predicated upon their patents. It's pretty awful. And obviously, it's a way of behaving that's antithetical to the purpose of a patent. Like patents weren't made so that you could set a trap and wait and then pounce on someone when they appear to, to trip the trap. They were made to you know, encourage innovation and invention. Now, because patents are available for public review, you can go and look at all these patents that are filed to this day. You can search various databases for all the patents that have been filed that, that still exist. We'll talk more about that in tomorrow's episode. But this also means that the inventor or patent holder can't keep their invention to themselves forever. Ideally, someone with the materials and skill would be able to take those specifications that were laid out in a patent along with whatever sketches might be included and build their own version of that invention. They can't do that without the inventor's permission until the patent expires. But at that point, it enters public domain and it's fair game. So the thinking behind this is that really useful inventions shouldn't be locked away from the public in perpetuity. They should be available for people to make use of beyond a certain span of years. So a patent is meant to grant a reasonable amount of time to the patent holder in order for them to make money off of their invention. Chances are, by the time the patent expires, advancements will mean that the original invention isn't necessarily relevant anymore anyway. But with the patent going into the public domain, people are free to build upon that design and to improve upon it and to evolve it. So a patent is a balance between providing for the benefit of the inventor or patent holder and ensuring the public good in the long term. Now, there are criteria that an invention has to meet in order to be patentable. For one thing, it needs to have a useful purpose, though that could be a fairly subjective criterion. It needs to be new. If there are already versions of this invention out there in the world, well, then it's not eligible for a patent. We've seen this recently with lots of things where where people have argued, hey, there were already versions of that technology that existed prior to your patent application, so you shouldn't be able to receive a patent for that. 
because it's not new. Something else already exists that does the thing you're doing. It's also supposed to be non-obvious. So that means it needs to be inventive. It needs to be something that not just anybody would say, oh, this is bad design. Let's just change this one thing and now it works better. So you, it can't be an obvious improvement. It has to be something that, you know, was special. If the average person could have invented it, then it doesn't qualify for a patent. Uh, it also has to cover patentable subject matter. And this gets a little more complicated. Uh, so, for example, you couldn't patent something that occurs in nature, like a flower, assuming, of course, that the flower already exists in nature. And that makes sense. You know, the flower is not of human design. It's not a flower that's of human origin. But if you were able to create, say, a new kind of flower and it reproduces asexually and it's not found in nature, that is something that is patentable. You can also patent a process. Uh, in fact, you can patent really kind of abstract processes if they have like a, a concrete outcome. So if you came up with a new way to conduct business, you could conceivably file and receive a patent for that. And you can patent formula for stuff like drugs or other chemicals. Those kind of things can be patented. But mathematical formula cannot be patented. Neither can scientific principles. Those cannot be patented. That mathematics bit ended up being a real hang-up when people started writing software because they wanted to patent their software. But there were a lot of debates over whether a program would be patentable. Because when you really get down to brass tacks, programs are just a set of mathematical operations. And mathematical operations and formulas are not patentable. Back in the 1960s and 1970s, the Patent and Trademark Office was reluctant to issue a patent for any invention that included calculations made by a computer. The Supreme Court in the United States backed up the Patent Office in a couple of major decisions during those decades. Uh, things started to change a little bit in the 1980s, however. The Supreme Court ruled that one process that did include software was, in fact, patentable. But this was a process that had a lot of different elements in it. Uh, if you're curious, it was really about heating rubber to the proper temperature in order to cure the rubber. And software was one part of it, but not the only part. So this wasn't exactly a clear-cut case saying, yes, software is patentable. It was more like the software was part of a larger process and the overall process was patentable. Today, obtaining a patent on software is still a little dodgy and it can really gum up the court systems in the U.S., uh, but that's a matter for another episode. So let's talk about some other stuff that you cannot patent. Uh, you can't patent surgical procedures. You can't patent a dance or an exercise, uh, though you could patent exercise equipment or dance equipment. Uh, you can't patent an invention that violates the laws of physics. So that means stuff like perpetual motion machines are not eligible for patents, even though that hasn't always stopped inventors from trying to patent it. And it hasn't always stopped the patent office from making a whoopsie, at least in the short term. Well, we're going to talk more about the actual history of patents in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsors. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. 
Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. So the history of patents in the United States involves one of the founding fathers of the country, one of our early presidents, in fact, Thomas Jefferson. So old Tommy boy spent a great deal of time in Europe securing support as the colonies that would become the United States were attempting to establish a new nation. And one of the many things he picked up while over in Europe was this concept of patents. And he felt that the United States would need its own way to protect ideas and inventions and innovation and experimentation. So he thought this is something we need to establish in our new country. So in 1790, as Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson supported a bill that would establish the that the Secretary of State, the Secretary of War and the Attorney General would serve as a tribunal and they would have the power to grant or deny patents. Even in the earliest version of this law, the government required that inventions pass a standard of being, quote, sufficiently useful and important, end quote. If your invention didn't measure up to that standard, you were not going to get a patent for it. In fact, the tribunal was so strict that for the first year that patent law was even a thing in the United States, they granted only three patents. The very first one was for a process of making potash, which is used in fertilizer. 
George Washington gave that patent his John Hancock, which just wanted to say because I'm lame and I think I'm funny. At this time, there was no numbering system for patents. So while Georgie Boy signed the first patent into, you know, the U.S., that's not to say that Podash patent was patent number one, because we didn't start numbering patents for like four more decades. And I imagine the filing system back in those days was a nightmare. In fact, I know it was because some of the leaders of the patent office went bonkers trying to fix it. Now, the original term of protection for a patent was 14 years. And after 14 years, the patent design would go into the public domain and anyone would be able to make use of that invention without committing patent infringement. This clause kept inventors from being able to hoard their own work, which Jefferson and others saw as a way of protecting the public so that the most people could benefit from inventions while the inventor would still enjoy a fairly long span of time as the exclusive rights holder. Thought being like, oh, yeah, you're, you're going to be able to get rich in 14 years. And after that, then, you know, you had your time and that invention needs to be sort of freed up so that more people can take advantage of it. The early version of this law also laid out that patent applications should include detailed drawings and, if possible, a model to demonstrate the working components. The model part would be really important for nearly a century, and this would help determine if the invention described was even possible, if it would even work, and to understand the underlying working elements of that invention. If your model was such that you could not see how this invention could possibly work when built at scale, that was a bad sign. So the model needed to be able to convey, yes, this is an idea that will work in the real world. One of the big issues with these models is that they took up a lot of space, right? Like you had to find a place to put them and store them and preserve them. And that would become a huge challenge later on as more patent applications would pour in. Now, if you were an inventor, you could choose not to pursue a patent at all if you wanted to. You could just try and keep your design a secret. You could choose to not share drawings or models of your invention. And maybe you make the thing and sell the thing, and you never bother to explain how the thing works to anyone else. So you might want to do that rather than describe in detail how your invention works. Because that way, you would be the one making all the decisions about your invention forever, or at least for as long as you're alive. However, if someone else were able to figure out how your invention works, then they could go and make their own version without going through you. And if you don't have a patent protecting your invention, you don't really have a lot of recourse. If your competitor is better at marketing and selling your invention than you are, you could find yourself at a major disadvantage. So while filing a patent requires you to explain how the heck your thing works, the protections you get from a patent can outweigh any concern about, you know, giving up your secrets. Unless it's a trade secret you really want to protect. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's another alternative to getting a patent, just not necessarily a wise one, depending upon what your invention is. Anyway. Back to the history of patents in the U.S. So early inventors were starting to complain about the patent system that Jefferson had kind of overseen. And there's not 
really a big surprise there. When you have only three patent applications that make it all the way through to become patents in a full year, you might start to say the system is not working as intended. So some inventors complained that the people who were occupying the positions that were responsible for reviewing the patents were inherently biased against the industrial class. And there may have been some truth to that. Uh, The political leadership of the U.S. largely came from more aristocratic lines, sometimes agrarian ones, Thomas Jefferson, for example. So we got a couple of revisions to patent law in the following years that changed things around in a major way. So in 1793, just three years in to this grand experiment of four, technically, if you count like 1790, 91, 92, and then 93, a big change happened. And that change was that it removed the tribunal's right to review applications and then reject them on the basis of lack of merit. So kind of like a drastic opposite of how things had been going up to that point. So essentially the thought was that the patent office should just grant patents regardless of whether the application demonstrated a useful or new invention or not. If they pays their money, they gets their patents. That was the thinking. That would mean that the U.S. court system would be responsible for hashing out all the different legal cases that involve problems with this approach. Remember, if if you're not able to review and reject a patent application and someone patents an invention and then someone else tries to patent the same invention, you can't reject it. That means you grant a patent for both inventions, even though one clearly predated another, which kind of brings the whole question about who has those patent rights under fire, right? And these are things that would end up going to courts, and then the courts would have to decide all this. So it was kind of passing the buck of this responsibility off to the court system. Not that the tribunal necessarily wanted this, but this is how the law was changed. So if you filed a patent for something simple that had already been around for ages, like you didn't actually invent something, you just decided to file a patent for like, I don't know, a shovel, then Technically, if you paid your application fee, then you would get your patent approved and you could theoretically use your patent to go after anyone who made a shovel that didn't pay you. Uh, Chances are that wouldn't really go very far in court, like it wouldn't be a successful kind of tactic, but it would take up a lot of time. It would waste time and it'd be a real nuisance. And so, yeah, this was a big change. Now, another set of revisions stated that only a U.S. citizen would be able to receive a U.S. patent. That rule would also evolve over time. You would have exceptions or some language that would change this a bit, like if someone had been in the country for uh, at least two years and expressed a desire to become a U.S. citizen, then they would be eligible for a patent. Then, you know, this would change again. So this was an evolving concept. But there was a time where if you wanted to get a U.S. patent, you had to be a U.S. citizen. Interesting, because again, the United States had not existed for very long at all at this point. From 1790 to 1802, there was a solitary clerk in the State Department who oversaw operations, because rapidly, this whole tribunal approach essentially said, "Uh, let's just make one person in charge of this and not have to take up department time with the leaders of three different departments coming together to make these decisions. So it became a clerk in the State Department who had to do it. And that was rough. So once you get to 1802, 
Jefferson then appoints a physician named Dr. William Thornton as the superintendent of the patent office, a position he would hold for 26 years. And to this day, Dr. Thornton stands out as the person who served as leader of the patent office for the longest tenure. Dr. Thornton was a highly educated man. He was born uh, in the British Virgin Islands in 1759. He was sent to attend school in England. Uh, He ended up attending the University of Aberdeen and earned a medical degree there. And interestingly, when he returned to the United States, he participated in a little competition. There was a competition to submit designs for what the U.S. Capitol building should look like. So he created one and he won the competition. He would actually go on to design other buildings that would become famous landmarks in Washington, D.C., not all of which would survive due to something that's going to happen in just a few years. Uh, But yeah, he did this without any formal training in architecture. He was just really interested in it and submitted his designs and won. Anyway, he assumed the role of patent office superintendent on June 1st, 1802, becoming the first superintendent of the United States Patent Office. Now, originally, the title was more or less informal. Uh, There was like no official law that really established the office. In fact, he wasn't allowed to hire an assistant until 1810, which meant he had to oversee all the work of the office personally. It was an office consisting of one person, and that was the superintendent. I think that's hilarious that you could be a superintendent and have no one to superintend, I guess. Anyway, that year, 1810, would also see the U.S. government purchase a building that was called Blodgett's Hotel. So it was a building that was meant to be, you know, the sort of luxurious hotel. But from what I understand, apparently the money to build the hotel kind of ran out mid-construction or toward the end of construction. And so it was not quite finished. So U.S. Congress purchased this building and chose it to serve as the headquarters for both the United States Post Office and the Patent Office. That post office bit would later end up being very bad news, as it turns out. But again, that's getting ahead of things. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, we'll close out this part one episode about the history of patent law and the patent office in the United States. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This 
is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. Now, we left off in 1810 with uh, the Blodgett Hotel becoming the new home for the post office and the patent office. And Dr. Thornton is well into his tenure as superintendent of the patent office. This would be the year when he would finally be able to hire an assistant. Well, two years after that, war broke out. Now, fittingly, it was the War of 1812. So at least everything lined up so that the war was on time. However, that war actually lasted till 1815, so it kind of overstayed its welcome. Anyway, this war was primarily between America and the British, frequently fought through native proxies. Like there were Native Americans uh, who were fighting on behalf of America on one side and fighting on behalf of Britain on the other side. Now, to go into all the reasons about why there was a war in the first place is beyond the scope of this podcast. And besides, there's actually a lot of historical debate over what the heck really precipitated this war. I mean, there are a lot of different factors and people argue over which ones were the most important. But for our episode, the important bit is that the patent office was in Washington, D.C. And in 1814, British forces captured Washington, D.C., and all the government buildings were potentially in danger because they were important and they were big and they were great targets for setting stuff on fire. So the story goes that Dr. Thornton prevailed upon the British to spare Blodgett Hotel, arguing that the patents and the models within the hotel were for inventions that could benefit people all around the world, not just in the United States. And that if the British were to burn them all and destroy them, it would be inflicting severe self-harm down the line. And that plea appeared to work. The British 
did not burn down the Blodgett Hotel the way that they did with many other buildings, including the U.S. Capitol, which, if you recall, was based off of Dr. Thornton's own design. In fact, Congress itself would have to temporarily move into the Blodgett Hotel in 1815 as a result of having nowhere else to meet because the U.S. Capitol was so badly damaged by fire and had to undergo extensive repairs. And just to be historically fair, while you know you could say, wow, the British came in and started burning all these important buildings, isn't that terrible? We have to also keep in mind that the Americans had captured and raided and burned British-held properties in Canada leading up to this. So neither side was innocent of this kind of behavior. They both had been perpetuating the sort of warfare against one another. So I don't want to just be unfair to the Brits. The Americans also got a little uh, happy with the matchsticks. Dr. Thornton got into uh, some, some fairly significant disputes during his time as superintendent. Uh, for one thing, a major thing, he disagreed with the 1793 revisions to patent law that said he was not supposed to reject patents that failed to describe something that was new or useful. He thought, that is dumb. <laughs> it's just ludicrous to give a blanket approval to any patent that happens to pay the application fee. So he largely ignored that rule. He just said, you know what? No, I'm going to tell inventors that I'm not going to approve a patent if the invention they describe isn't new or useful. So he became kind of the sole arbiter to decide if a patent was worthy or not. He also occasionally would list himself as an inventor or a co-inventor on patents. I don't know to what extent he actually contributed to the invention. Uh, maybe this was because he would sometimes work with applicants in order to get their patents in shape so that they could be approved. I don't know the answer to that, but it did bring into question his uh, ethics. Like, is he just listing himself so that he can enjoy some of the 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 reward of this invention going into production? He was involved in a fracas or fracas, if you're down here in the South, with Robert Fulton. That was the inventor of the steamboat. Uh, Fulton was finding it very frustrating to work with the patent office, and this might be because that Dr. Thornton was also close friends with a guy named John Fitch, who was a contemporary and competitor to Mr. Fulton, which just goes to show that conflicts of interest have always been a thing. Now, Dr. Thornton served as superintendent of the patent office until 1828, and he stopped then. Like, he totally stopped because, you know, he, he died. The next person to hold the office would be Thomas P. Jones, another scientist and physician. And that came as quite a shock to a guy named William Elliot. Uh, William Elliot had been Dr. Thornton's chief clerk, sort of his right-hand man. And Elliot had assumed that he would be promoted to superintendent upon Dr. Thornton's passing, but that did not happen. And so the seeds were sown for some major drama in the U.S. Patent Office. But with that bit of foreshadowing, we're going to bring this episode to an end, and we will pick up here tomorrow with tomorrow's episode. Uh, just a reminder, as I said, on Friday, I will be in Las Vegas 
at the iHeart House of Music, which is free. It's outside the T-Mobile Arena. It's part of the festival, but it's a free part of the festival. So if you want to swing by and say hi on Friday, uh, I'll be out there. Uh, I'll be the bald guy getting ready to podcast at 6 p.m. I hope to see you there. And I hope you're all well. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.